Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. You guys are a lively bunch this morning. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. We love that. I was uh, talking with somebody this week, and they were sharing just about how friendly they felt our church was when they started coming. And I hope that's true for you, that you feel like we enjoy being with each other because we do, and we want you to be part of that. So we're just so thankful for this morning. And uh, this morning is uh, traditionally what's called Palm Sunday. It's a week before Easter. It's, if we look in Scripture, uh, a week before Christ went to the cross and gave his life to pay for the sins of all mankind through all history, he entered into Jerusalem to the praises of the people. Um, they thought that he was the Messiah. Many of them believed that he was going to be the one who was going to restore the authority of Israel that was going to push out Roman rule and be able to allow them to live as a free people. Um, and so they worshiped him. But then just days later, things turned in accordance to God's will. And it led to people calling out saying, crucify him, crucify him. And so this morning, we're going to look at one verse. We're going to look at the verse that many of us probably memorized as the very first verse that was shared with us. We're going to look at John three sixteen. If you have a copy of God's Word, yes. I would love for you to take it, open it, and find John three sixteen in your own Bible, even though I would say probably 90% of us could probably quote it. You know, John three sixteen is a it's a familiar verse. It's also a pretty famous verse. I remember growing up in the 80s, and I remember signs being held up behind different parts of sporting events where people would hold up John 3.16 signs. I was doing some research on this, and in 2009, the college national championship for football was being played between Oklahoma and Florida, and the quarterback for Florida was a guy named Tim Tebow. And on the eye black that he wore underneath his eyes, he wrote John 3.16, and they statistically said that 94 million people Google searched John 3.16 during that game. It's a pretty famous verse. In fact, how many of you guys in here like In-N-Out? Is there anybody in here that likes In-N-Out? Yeah. We all trying to eat healthy or something? We don't want to admit that? What's the deal? <laughs> hey, next time you go to In-N-Out, look at the bottom of your soda cup. On it, you will find John 3.16 written on the bottom of every single In-N-Out cup. It's a pretty famous verse. But here's the problem. Sometimes when we become so familiar with something, it could diminish our value and appreciation for that very thing. I was reading a story about uh, a painting it was known as the Trooper on the Guard. It was painted by a famous painter of American West, F. Tinney Johnson, in 1935. The article says, For decades, the painting of a mustachioed man on a horse in the western moonlight hung on a war in the memorial building in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, with no one giving it a second look. Then a woman stopped one day and asked, Is that an original Frank Tinney Johnson? It was. And at six figures, a found treasure for a financially strapped town. 
Once restored, the painting could fetch about $375,000 at auction. There it was for years. It had been uh, painted in 1935. Uh, a woman in that town owned it. And when she passed away, she had willed it to the, the town, the city. And they took it and they put it on a wall inside just a normal building, inside one of their libraries. And for decades, people walked by and they just saw this picture. Nothing fancy about this picture until someone who knew art was able to say, wait a second, is that an original F. Tinney Johnson? And it was. All these years, walking by, not realizing that there was a prized treasure piece of art there for them to take in. See, John 3.16 isn't just familiar, and it's not just famous. It is full of theology. It's full of it. It, it has so much that, that we could, if you were to strip away all of the other verses of the Bible and just John three sixteen remain, there'd be so much that we could glean about God, his love for us, and what he's called us to do. Jerry Vines, a, a preacher, said this, Here is a verse that is so simple, a child can understand it, yet so profound that all the scholars of the ages can't plumb its depths. John Phillips, another commentator, said this, No other single statement in the Bible so aptly sums up God's redemptive purpose in Christ for the human race. Volumes have been written on it. It's each and every word has been weighed and examined and marveled at and preached on. The text is inexhaustible. And so as we prepare for Easter, what I want to do this morning to kind of prime our hearts for this next week as we head into a day set aside every year for us as Christians to come together and to celebrate the fact that Christ is not dead in a tomb somewhere, his remains aren't in the ground, but that he rose from the grave. Amen? Amen. As we prepare for that, I want us to consider this morning John three sixteen. I want us to stop and gaze upon this masterpiece and take in all its beauty, and I want us to hopefully grasp again how beautiful God's love is for us. I'm going to put the verse up here on the screen. We've been preaching out of the Christian Standard Version recently, and, and it words it a little bit different than how I grew up memorizing it. But look what it says. It says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. I want to highlight three global truths that I see in this. And remind, this won't be the only sermon that I probably will ever preach on John 3.16. It won't be the most exhaustive sermon. I believe you can't plumb the depths of John 3.16. But there are three things that God just keeps raising up in my heart as I keep looking at this passage that I think we need to consider this morning as we prepare our hearts for Easter. Here's the first global truth. This truth applies to every human that's ever lived on planet Earth. There's a problem, and that problem is as our sins have left us all condemned to perish. Our sins have left us all condemned to perish. It says here that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so the reverse implication is that those who don't believe in the Son of God, that those who don't believe in God's Son will be condemned to perish. 
That word condemn means to be judged as guilty, deserving of the penalty, here described as perishing. See, I think again, we're so familiar with this passage that sometimes we read it quickly and we, we jump to the fact that God loved us so much and that whoever believes will have eternal life, but we, we forget that how, how valuable that, that promise, that gift is because of what hangs in the balance for those who don't believe. I just want us to consider for a few minutes the, the word perish. It's a heavy word. In the Greek language, it literally means to destroy. Throughout scripture, the Bible talks about what happens to us when we die. It's not that the lights just go out and we cease to exist, but that we are both physical bodies and spiritual beings, and all our bodies are decaying as a result of sin, and our bodies will one day cease to end. Our spiritual being will continue to exist forever, fully conscious, and we will either be spiritually with the Lord or we'll be apart from him. And so ultimately, to perish is to be separated from God eternally. This, I, this state of being apart from him is as eternal as the eter- promise of eternal life. This is a global problem. It's true for all people. No one is exempt. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned. All of us. And that the penalty of that sin is death, is to perish is to be separated from God forever. Now, why on a Sunday leading up to Easter, one of the greatest days of the year for us to celebrate and just time out on the message, gonna step over here. You know, as Christians, we don't have to wait for Easter to celebrate the resurrection, right? All right, time back in. Why would I spend time talking about the fact that we have all been condemned by our sins, that we're all sinful, we're all deserving to perish, to spend an eternity apart from the Lord? completely just broken. I like how one pastor answers that question. Alistair Begg said this, the black background of sin makes the bright light of love shine more clearly. Some of you guys uh, probably love fireworks here in Oregon. We don't get to, to maybe light off the ones that are the funnest to light off. But every year there's fireworks shows. I know there's volcano stadiums usually puts one up. But, you know, one of the hardest parts as a kid, if you look forward to fireworks on the 4th of July, is it, that's probably some of the days of the year where we have the light the longest. It stays light so late and we have to stay up. And if you're little, you know, you get tired or your parents are ready for you to go to bed. And, but why do we wait to, to do the fireworks at night? Why don't they do Because you can fire a firework off at any point. You can fire it off at noon. You might be able to see parts of it, but there's a reason why we wait till the evening, till when the sky is dark. It's because when those fireworks go up in the air and they ignite and they burst in all the different arrays of colors, we are able to see them the brightest. Their colors are the most vivid. And I believe that if you and I this morning don't really just spend a moment to consider what it means that if Christ had not come to offer his life in our place, to pay the penalty for our sins. If we don't understand what it means to perish, to be separated from God forever, then it is possible for us to lose our awe of what God has offered us. 
It's possible for us to not value Christ's death, burial, and resurrection the way it's deserved to be valued. We might not appreciate it. We might not actually see this morning if you've been invited by a friend to come to church and, and perhaps you don't have a relationship with Christ. You probably, if you don't understand what, what your sins have brought upon you and what is waiting for you, if those sins are undealt with, then you possibly won't understand how great a gift that Christ is offering to you freely. And so we need to start here. We need to start with the problem so that we can greater, have a greater appreciation for the provision. But here's the thing. One of the things that distracts us from, from accepting what Christ has done for us and believing what God says about our reality and about our spiritual condition apart from God is that we can get offended at the Bible and what it tells us about ourselves. We can get offended at what it says about us when it says how dark and rebellious and depraved and sinful we are. We can deny it. We can get angry about it. We can say, no, we reject it. We can get offended by the accusation that we are sinful people in need of a Savior, but we need to make sure that doesn't happen because if we get stuck on perish, we'll miss the provision. If you get stuck on the fact that God says you're a sinner, if you want to take God to task with that, you want to debate him on that, you're actually going to spend all your time arguing on the wrong thing when a provision has been made available to everyone. So the first thing we need to see this morning is the problem. Our sins have left us all condemned to perish. But here's the second thing I want to bring out is that God has made a great provision. God's love for the world moved him to provide a redeemer. It says in our text, For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son. Now, many of the other translations that we grew up reading, or maybe you have on your lap this morning, use the phrase like this For God so loved the world. There's not a more important so in the whole Bible. So loved. That word is intentionally put there by the author, John, who was a disciple who followed closely to Jesus. Uh, he claimed to be the one that Jesus loved the most. He was a feeler. And so he communicates feeling in his writing about Christ. And he says, God so loved the world, as he writes down the words of Jesus here. God so loved the world. He's, Jesus is trying to communicate the Father's depth and intensity of love to Nicodemus, who he's talking to here in John chapter 3. God loves the world. Have you ever wondered why? If we are so sinful and dark and rebellious and stubborn and prone to continue to trip up and go back to those old sins over and over again, why does he love us so much? Well, I can tell you with, with great confidence this morning, it wasn't out of obligation. God did not send his son to die for our sins because he had to. He was responsible for the problem, and so he had to provide a way out. He did not cause us to sin. Man chose to sin and rebel against God, and that choice in the Garden of Eden has been continued to be passed down to all of us. He would have been completely justified to stand by the condemnation that we've brought upon ourselves. He wouldn't have to feel guilty. He wouldn't have anyone that could stand in his presence and claim that he was being too harsh. 
He's being too quick to judge. He was being too impulsive. No, they would say that is the right determination for that decision. Those sins are worthy of perishment, of condemnation, of judgment. It wasn't out of obligation that he loves us. But it also wasn't because of our great potential. You know, sometimes as human beings, we see someone who's struggling, who's making some mistakes, but we see their potential. And so we're willing to be gracious with them. We're willing to give them a second chance. We're willing to invest in them because we believe that the investment will eventually pay off. Are you thankful for people like that? I am. (laughs) I am. Some of you have known me for the 22 years I've been a part of this church. Aren't you thankful for God's grace? (laughs) It's true. But that's not why God loves you. It wasn't because your potential, what you would do in your own abilities if he just gave you a second chance. Wasn't because you were you were pretty good. You were just kind of a little dirty by that sin. No, it says when when God looks at us in our sinful condition, there's nothing that we can do that he will ever say is good or righteous apart from him. The simple answer to what motivated God to love us in this way, to so love the world, is himself. Why did God love the world? Why did God choose to send his son? Because God is love. There's lots of words in the Bible that are translated in the English language, love. Some of them describe a type of love that is a romantic love that that is supposed to be uh, within a marriage relationship. Some words are translated in the English language with love that are, are supposed to indicate a brotherly or familial type of love between one another. But the love that describes God's love is a word, called, a word called agape. And agape love is God's love. It's not man's love. It's God's love. It's unconditional. It's, it's faithful in the face of unfaithfulness. It's not reciprocal, meaning that he shows it when it's been shown to him. No, his love is self-initiated. It flows out of who he is. As much as light has to be bright, God has to be love. He can't be apart from that. He is love. In 1 John chapter 4, the author of John 3, 16 writes this, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Hear that again. Not that we loved God, Not that he saw potential in us to come around and really want to be in relationship with him. No, he initiated it. He loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, this is so important to understand that we can't just focus on the fact that there's a problem in our lives caused by the sins that we have brought on upon ourselves, that we have chosen to do ourselves, and now there's a consequence we brought upon ourselves. He's provided a provision in his son And it's so important to understand these things because if we get stuck on the perishing, on the accusation that we're sinful, we'll miss out on this provision and we'll wrongly conclude that the God of the Bible is this angry, judgmental God that if you offend him in the slightest, he will wipe you off the face of the earth. 
Some people think that's what Christianity says. You better live your life perfectly if you want to be accepted by the only true God. Otherwise, you're on the outs. But that's not what Scripture says about God. That's not what God has revealed to us about himself. And that's definitely not the kind of love that Jesus modeled in his earthly life. You see, God's heart is not judgment, it's grace. I'm going to say it again. God's heart is not judgment, it's grace. Will he judge those who rebel and those who choose not to believe? Yes, out of his righteousness. But that is not his first response. His first response is grace. His first response is to do everything possible to make it possible for you to have your sins forgiven, wiped away, removed, so that relationship can be restored with him and you could spend eternity in relationship with him. His heart is not judgment, but grace. His demeanor is not angry, it's mercy. Right after John 3, 16, where he tells us about this amazing provision, it says in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. How in the world do we get this so mixed up? Why is it that so many unbelievers believe that Christianity is a, is a religion that is angry and judgmental and focuses on the people that God hates and tries to maybe use fear and manipulation to get people to live rightly? When Jesus is quoted here as saying, God did not send me into this world to condemn, but to save. Jesus said, I have come to seek and save the lost. I think it's important for us to understand that God's love for the world is so deep and so intimate, but it's not because of our potential or out of obligations, because of his great love for us. Because if we understand this, it's going to change the way we approach God. There's a story in John chapter 11 of... uh, these siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus was the brother. He was very sick. We know from other parts of Scripture that that these were friends of Jesus. And so Lazarus was very sick, and Mary and Martha were concerned that there wasn't something that they were going to be able to do to help their brother. And so they sent a message to Jesus to let Jesus know that Lazarus was sick and in need of help. They had to stay and take care of their brother. And so what do they do? They, they, they write out a message and they give it to someone to go take it to Jesus. Now, if you were in that situation, if it was your wife or husband or brother or sister, mother, father, someone you truly cared about, and there was someone that you believe could help them, what would you do to try to motivate that person to come and help your loved one? You possibly might call in a favor Hey, remember that time I helped you out and I loaned you my, my blower? Remember that time I loaned you my generator during the ice storm? Hey, I'm calling him back a favor. Or possibly you would say, hey, oh man, I think, it's, uh, I think you need to do this. This is what you've been trained to do. You're supposed to come and help people that need help. 
They might try to use manipulation. Or they might try to list out, hey, this is Lazarus. I mean, look at his potential. Look at how much he's served you, God. Look at how much that he has gone. He's told people that you are the true Messiah. And look at how he stayed true to you even when other people turned away and tried to use Lazarus' merit to get God to come. But do you know what they wrote on that note? Jesus, the one you love is sick. Not the one that has been faithful to you, the one that has so much potential to do good for your, for your kingdom, not the one that ha, you, know, you owe. Jesus, the one you love is sick. They, they were not appealing to anything besides God's love. God, you love Lazarus. That's what would motivate you to come. The one you love is sick. See, if we understand this about God, think about how this would change the way we pray. God, I, I need you because you know, I've been doing my daily devotions and I've been participating in growth group and I haven't missed a Sunday, God, and I really need you to meet me here and answer this prayer. Or is it, God, I know you love me. I know that you've provided everything I need for life and godliness. I know that there's nothing that you're putting in my way that, that you've designed to be so hard and so heavy that it would destroy me. I'm just calling, I need your help. And I know I can come to you because of your great love for me. See, God is motivated by his love for you, nothing else. And so what is he waiting for us? He's just waiting for us to turn to him. He's just waiting for us to get our eyes off that thing that we think is the most important thing or the thing that's going to give us life or the thing that's going to give us the most sense of satisfaction or purpose or calling or identity. And he's saying, take your eyes on off all these things that I've created that I created to be good but have gotten twisted by sin and get your eyes back on me. And you will find love. You will find grace. You will find mercy. And so we see the problem of our sin and we see this awesome provision that has been motivated by God's love. But there's one more thing I want to highlight for us this morning. It's a promise. And here's the promise. Everyone who believes in the Son of God will have eternal life. If we kind of understand the context, John 3 is a story about a man named Nicodemus who had come to see Jesus to ask Jesus some questions. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. That means that he was considered one of the most devout people in the Jewish religion. These were the experts in the law, and they prided themselves on fulfilling the rules perfectly. They were rule followers. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin, which was kind of like the supreme court for the Jewish people. Now, the people of Israel had not heard from a prophet of God for hundreds of years, But Nicodemus had been hearing about the things that Jesus was doing, and he comes to Jesus at night to meet with Jesus because Nicodemus can tell there's something different about this guy because the things that he is doing can only be done by someone who's been sent by God. He still doesn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, but maybe as a rule follower, this man from God could help him understand what do I really need to do in my own abilities and in my own strength to really please God and get on his good side. And so he's coming to ask questions about the kingdom. And Jesus starts off by saying, no one's going to get into the kingdom by the good works they do. They have to be born again. And Nicodemus goes, "Uh, that's going to be a problem. (laughs) Jesus is like, I'm not talking physically. I'm talking about spiritually. You see, Nicodemus was confused. He thought that it was going to be his good works 
the things that he had done that pleased God that was going to enter, get him entrance into to the kingdom of God, into heaven. But Jesus says, no, I've come to tell you that it's not going to be about what you've done. It's going to be about what's done by Christ, the Messiah. And what God is going to grant entrance to is belief, not works. He says everyone who believes means that this is an inclusive offer, that what Jesus came to do wasn't going to be just limited to a, a certain small group of people. It was going to be available to all who would believe. I'm thankful for that. We do believe that Jesus is the only way to relationship with God, the only way to have our sins forgiven, the only one to have the promise of an eternity with God. But as exclusive as the way is, the offer is as inclusive as could possibly be everyone who believes. What is belief then? It's acknowledging and trusting that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came and lived a perfect life to die on the cross for our sins, and that he was buried and rose again on the third day, proving that he was God and proving that he had conquered sin by paying its penalty in full. This is going to then be modeled and demonstrated that there's been true belief through how we live going forward. But it's not going to be how we live that earns our salvation or earns God's approval. The way we live after we're saved just shows that it was true. It was genuine. I love what it says here that everyone who believes will have eternal life. This word have indicates an immediate granting of it. It's not something we work up to. See, everyone who lives their life trying to be a good person, thinking that those who go to heaven are people who live good lives, they're thinking that they're constantly trying to make deposits of good actions into this bucket, and then one day they're going to get before the Lord and pour it all out and see if it was enough on the scales. There is no confidence in trying to live a life good enough to get into heaven when you don't know exactly what the scales look like. That means you go to your deathbed wondering, have I been good enough? There's no salvation in that. There's no hope in that. There's no confidence in that. But those who believe immediately have everything that has been accomplished through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's eternal. It's fully guaranteed. Ray Ortland, in his book called The Gospel, put it like this. God has simplified everything for everyone. We don't have to be good enough. We don't have to know all the answers. God has the answers. He has lovingly provided everything in Christ. There is no reason for us to hold back. I was thinking this morning, as I was eating my breakfast, just this promise. God so loved the world Whoever believes won't perish but have eternal life. Do you know those people right now that live in parts of the world where they hate America, they hate Christianity, they, they want to annihilate it? Do you know that God's love for them is, is as deep and as rich as his love for you? Do you know those people who have made us so angry over this last couple of years by their ideologies, 
by the things that they're trying to promote as good and right, the things that they're trying to push in and try to make to, to govern us and to guide us, and who are so openly antagonistic and arrogant against God, do you know that God so loves them that he sent his son to die for them? Do you know that those people lost in their sin and rebelliousness are no different than you and I in our sin and lostness in God's eyes? But he loved us and he sent his son and he says, it's not about what you're gonna do, it's about what I'm gonna do. And even though I know there's going to be times that even though many of you are going to profess faith and you're going to start a relationship with me, but you're still going to struggle with that old flesh, that old nature, and you're still going to struggle, and you're going to have slip-ups and trip-ups, that did not impact my love for you. That did not stop me or cause me to second-guess coming for you. I'm all in. I want you. I want a relationship with you. And it's not because we're the main story of this we're not the main characters in this story. We're not the, the main thing. It's all for his glory. Who else would love like this? Who else would give like this? Who else would want to do this to their own detriment but a God who's wanting to say, let me show you the genuineness of my love. Let my glory be on display. Not even sin can hold it down. And so we have this promise that all who believe will have eternal life. And this is where I want to wrap up this morning. I've grown up in, in Christianity. Um, been in church my entire life. Been in Christian school. Went to Christian college. Taught in Christian school. And now I'm a pastor. I've been around Christianity quite a bit. And while I'm thankful for that, one of the things that for a lot of my life I didn't really understand was that when I read John three sixteen and I, and I heard about the promise of what happens to, to me because of my belief, I heard about this eternal life and I, for a long time, just focused on this being something that I had in my back pocket, that when my days were up and I stood before the Lord, I'd have that, that card, spiritually speaking, that I would present at the gates of heaven that would grant me access that eternal life was something that I would enjoy when I die. And one year I was teaching at a, at a summer camp. I was, I was giving a, a, a little sermon and someone came up to me and they asked me, well, what is eternal life? And so I started to explain, it's this life that I'm going to live once I die. I'm going to be with God forever. And that is true. But then this, this loving gentleman took me back to the book of John. And just a few chapters later, after we see this amazing promise in chapter 3, Jesus' words recorded in John chapter 17, verse 3. And it says this, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. And he said, Pete, I don't think this is just a promise that kicks in when you die. I think this is a promise that kicks in the moment that you are saved. Do you understand that right now, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are, have the potential to live that eternal life? 
That, you, that, that starts now. Because what eternal life isn't just a promise of safety in the future. It's a restoration of a relationship. See, before my relationship with Christ, I couldn't know God in a personal, intimate way. But now that my sins have been removed, I can know him. I can have a relationship with him. And through my knowledge of him and understanding his love and understanding his word, he begins to transform that sinful heart and all those sinful desires and he replaces them with desires that are glorifying to him and honoring to him, which leads me to the fullness life of I could ever experience because he created me. So eternal life in real life equals rest. See, today you could be restless but you don't have to be. And I'm not saying that if you just follow Jesus, all your problems are gonna go away. But this is, this promise of eternal life is not merely a future promise. It is a present reality. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I see so many people, saved and unsaved, who are walking through this life restless. They're not settled. They're not experiencing this fullness of joy. And I think it's because if that is the case, if we are restless, is that we are looking for rest outside of Christ. But the rest that you and I long for is found in relationship with the Redeemer. See, if we're self-focused, we'll never be satisfied. And if we're self-righteous, we'll never be confident. But if we are fully focused on Christ, if we are pursuing now this new relationship that's made possible through faith in him, we can experience rest. That first, that first blessing of rest comes at the moment we're saved, where we no longer have to worry and struggle about, am I going to be good enough to be accepted by God? When this all ends, am I going to be with him or am I going to be apart from him? Our souls can rest because we have peace to know that God has taken care of that in, in the Son, and now the gift of salvation has been offered to me, and I will be with him eternally. But there's an ongoing measure of rest as I continue to get to know my Savior that says I don't have to struggle and carry the burden of living this life on my own and making a good name for myself and trying to figure it all out on my own and trying to provide for myself and have security for myself and have people see me in a certain way. I can rest in the fact that my Savior and my God loves me and sees me right now as holy and blameless that there's no longer condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus and that he has a plan for my life, good works he's prepared in advance for me to do. And if I will follow him, yeah, that might be the hardest thing I will ever do, but I will be at perfect peace because I'm in Christ. See, some of us struggle to accept this gift. We go, yeah, I understand that Jesus died for sinners and, and he wants me to have this rest but he doesn't, I think he means it for everybody else. Because I've had an affair. Or I've had an abortion. Or I, I've, I've been an abuser. Or I'm an addict. And we start to go, I don't believe him. And yet we are so restless and we want Christ so much, 
that will go, okay, I will, I will try. What I'm going to do is I'm in my own strength. I'm going to try to make myself clean. I'm really going to walk away from those sinful habits, and I'm going to try to clean myself up, and maybe, just maybe, God will give me a second chance. But listen to how this one author put and try to find hope in this verse or this, uh, this text. It says, you don't need to be unburdened or collect yourself when you come to Jesus. Listen to this next line. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required. He says, I will give you rest. His rest is a gift, not a transaction. Whether you are actively working hard to crowbar your life into smoothness, labor, or passively finding yourself weighed down by something outside of your control, heavy laden, Jesus Christ desires that you will find rest, that you come in out of the storm, even your own. See, rest is a gift to be received, not a state to be achieved. See, this isn't just a message for people who are, who are not in a relationship with Jesus. This is a message for all of us who have a relationship with Jesus, but who are still trying to live life on our own terms, trying to make a life for our own, trying to build our own kingdoms, and yet we find ourselves just struggling and restless. But we think, if I could just get here, if I can just get to this level, if I can just get this things, if I can just get this position, if I can just, if I can just, and we're restless. And we're thinking, but if I get there, that's where I'm going to find rest. He says, no, no, rest is not something that you're going to achieve. It's a gift that I've already provided for you. Will you receive it? And so the question for us this morning, as we get ready to celebrate the great provision that Easter reminds us of, of Christ dying, being buried, and rising again, and now offering salvation to us, have you received the gift? And if you've already placed your faith in Jesus Christ, do you continue to hold on to that gift? And let that be what guides your life. I'm going to invite the worship team up, and we're going to get ready to do Lord's Supper. And as you came in this morning, hopefully you had an opportunity to grab a little cup with the elements. And if you didn't get one and would like one, if you stick your hand up right now, our ushers will come and get you one of those. I just want to help us connect this morning's message out of John 3, 16 to what we're about to do. If you're a guest with us this morning, I just want to explain kind of what, what this is. And if you have a relationship with Jesus, I want to invite you to participate with us. But perhaps you've come this morning and, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. And I want you to know uh, there's no pressure to do that. But this is something that I would invite you just to watch and respect as those who with the relationship are doing this in obedience to God's word. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, uh, he gathered for a meal with his 12 followers and he, he took elements, bread and wine, and he, he told them about some promises that were going to be secured through what Jesus was about to do on the cross. And he instructed his believers that they were to continue to do that. They were continue to take those elements and have these moments where they would do this together, remembering what Christ has done for them. Knowing that those promises and everything that had been secured in him was true. 
And so that's what we're going to do here in a few moments. We're going to be obedient as followers of Christ, and we're going to remember Christ coming in flesh, giving his body on the cross, and letting his his blood be poured out, spilled out for us, taking the penalty for our sins. But what communion reminds us of this morning as we wrap up this little message on John 3.16 as we look ahead to Easter is that Jesus coming in the flesh and giving his life for us for a, for a sinner, for someone who doesn't have a relationship with Christ, just reminds us that Christ died for you. He gave himself to you because he loves you. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ, he knows everything about you. He knows everything that you've done that has been against him, offensive to him. And he is totally willing this morning, if you were to place your faith in him, to say, forgiven and have a relationship with you, you will have eternal life. That's what this reminds us of, that that gift, that offer, that invitation is available to all who will believe because of what Christ did on the cross. But for those of us who have a relationship with Jesus this morning, every time we take the cup, we should be reminded that he is all we need. That because he gave his body to be broken on the cross for us and because he allowed his blood to be poured out on our behalf, there's nothing else that we need to do to find that rest besides believe. And this reminder hopefully will will jar us if we've been kind of off track, if we've lost our way, if we've been distracted to be reminded of what Christ has done and to repent, to turn away from that and turn back to God and, and to find this loving God that says, draw close to me and I will guide you through this. I'm so thankful for John 3, 16. I'm so thankful that God loved me so much knowing that all the things that I have done wrong would send his son to die for me. And because I believe that is true, not because I've been conditioned to believe it, but because I have carefully looked and said, there's something that Jesus offers that I can only find in him. I have confidence that my rest is secure both now and forever. And my heart's desire this morning would be that everyone in this room and everyone watching online would be experiencing the rest that comes through the relationship with our Redeemer. We're gonna pray, we're gonna worship, and then we're gonna take the elements. Would you pray with me? God, we love you. We thank you for this morning. And we just ask that you would help us to never walk past a verse like John three sixteen and just be indifferent, but that we would see the depth of your love. We would see the reality of the, the punishment that we deserve, that you took on our behalf. And we would not only believe, but we would live for you. And God, I pray right now, if there's someone in, the, in this room or someone watching online that is right now, your spirit is just saying, I know where you've been. I know what you're struggling with. And I know why you've rejected me, but I'm right now willing to remove all that if you will believe. God, would you just continue to draw them? And would they say, enough, I want rest. 
I want relationship with Jesus. God, would you draw them to place their faith in you and to have eternal life right now? God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for your great love. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.